3: Good afternoon everybody and welcome to getting in a college coach conversation i'm excited to have everyone here today it is heating up in the college admissions world because decisions are going to be coming out um really soon actually and if they haven't already they should be arriving within the next probably week and a half to two weeks um so good luck to everybody who's waiting to hear from their uh, schools of choice Um, A little bit later in the show, we're going to be talking about a recent New York Times article that came out about encouraging creativity in students. And my colleague, Kara Courtois, who's a teacher herself, is going to be joining me. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about the article, um, about encouraging creativity, and also thinking about how creativity might play a role in the college admissions process. Um, And we're also going to be answering your college finance questions you asked, and um, we have answers for you. Um, but before we get to all of that, I'm very excited to welcome another student to the show to talk about her college selection story, um, and that student today is Noah Braun. Noah, welcome.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
3: So. Um, what we've been talking to sort of series of students, and for our listeners, if this is the first time you're hearing about it, go to our archives because you'll find them there. But basically, we've been talking to students about how they came to end up at the school that they're at. And um, you're currently at the University of Southern California, and I understand from Becky, very happy there, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But um, I. What we're really interested in is helping students and parents understand the process and how you come to ultimately select a school. And so with that in mind, when you started your search for the right college for you, what were the things that you were mostly concerned with when you first started? Your primary criteria,
4: I guess. So I guess it's interesting how you think about it um, I think starting off junior year, when you're really starting to look at colleges for the first time, kind of understand what you're looking for. A lot of it for me at the beginning was a rankings game because I wasn't familiar with programs. I wasn't familiar with um, involvement on campus and what that would mean to be a student on campus who's involved in a program that's interesting as opposed to a student going to the number one school he or she can get into. Um, I think... Once I started visiting schools and learning more about them, that definitely changed. Obviously, the stature of the school is still something that's important. I hold, um, and I hold dearly the fact that USC is a great school. However, I think I realized more so that the experience at the actual university was important. So I started looking at different organizations on campus I might be interested in, or um, the exact programs what I wanted to pursue post grad and how I was able to do so in the experience of the university.
3: And, and how did
4: you kind of start to shift
3: your thought process? Was it just the, the activity of being on the school campuses? Was there
4: anything else that
3: kind of came into play for you?
4: So I think it's interesting. Um, I think what, would happen, what happened is the summer after my junior year, I actually went on a big college tour of about 12 or 14 different universities, mostly East Coast and Midwest. Mm -hmm. And on that tour, I realized that all of these schools that were of a very similar stature, all very great universities, I started having different opinions about just hearing the, the programs that I would be applying to, the different programs at play, the different organizations that student leaders or the campus tour guides were involved in. And I think having more of an awareness about what was going on on campus Kind of caused me to realize that although one school may be ranked number six and the other one might be ranked number 12, you name it, um, they're all very different and you have to approach them a little bit differently. It's not just a numbers game.
3: Well, right. I mean, it's sort of, um, it's an analogy I've made before, but something or someone could look really great on paper and then the actuality might be very different, right, from what you hoped you would find.
4: Exactly, and I think that was the case. I'd visit these schools that I thought I would love just because they were ranked so high and came to realize that it didn't really seem like the right fit for me. Got it.
3: So you said you started, you, you did this huge tour in the Midwest and on the East Coast, and you saw maybe 12 to 14 schools. Would you say that a lot of those schools you were surprised that you didn't like, or was it that you you didn't like the ones that you thought you were going to like the most? Did you end up having to go back and do more visits after that original big group of schools?
4: So of the schools I toured, I would probably say that I actually only ended up applying to about half of them, plus a handful Mm -hmm. of other universities across the country, um, Mm -hmm. because I didn't actually get to tour any of the UCs, I didn't tour anything in the Bay Area, Southern California. So, of course, there were schools that were left out of that college tour. I think the college tour helped me not only put into perspective what it takes to get into some of these schools, but Mm -hmm. also the reality that I wouldn't necessarily like like any top-ranked school. Right, just because it was was top-ranked, right? Exactly, exactly.
3: So, so in the end, you said you applied to maybe half of those and a handful of others. Would you say you applied to about 10 schools, a few more, a few less?
4: Um, I would say, I, yeah, okay. I applied to too many schools. If you ask me, my, my big advice is don't apply to more schools than you need to. If mm-hmm. you know you have, if you have good safeties, you have good matches, you have good reaches, leave it at that. I applied to over 20 schools, I think. Oh, yes, that's a lot. Did that include all of the UCs? (laughs) Yes. It did include UCs. It
3: did, okay. So, I mean, that's a little something slightly different for our California listeners. Um, But, uh, yeah, I would say that's way too many. And I think it's always nice to hear from a student who says, yeah, it was way too many. Um, It was a lot. Did, it make, did, did the number of schools you ultimately applied to make it difficult to make a decision in the end, or did the decisions that came back kind of help do that for you because you didn't get into as many as you applied?
4: So the decisions that came back in the end, definitely I was left with, let's say, five or four options that were definitely feasible, ones that I was excited about. And then beyond that, there were also schools that I applied to just because I knew I wanted to get in somewhere. There's a lot of anxiety, I think, that surrounds the college acceptance, college rejection process. And I think a lot of it was just trying to get into a university and knowing that I was in somewhere to quell that anxiety, which is probably why I ended up applying to so many different schools. Got it. Got it. So, But yeah. like you
3: say, if you have a good list with good safeties and some good matches, you've got to feel confident in that list. And what I do see students sometimes doing is panicking a little bit at the end there saying, oh, my goodness, exactly what you're saying. What if I don't get in? I'm going to throw exactly. these five more schools on and you don't need to do that. Good point. Completely All right, so, so then what you had your five or six that you really liked that you could see yourself attending. How did you go about narrowing that? I know in the end it came down to two schools, but how did you get from the five or six to the two?
4: Okay. So I think once it was the five or six, I'd kind of narrowed it down to the ones that I was most excited about. I think the big consideration for me were narrowing down the two or three or a handful of values or different elements of the university that I think are really important to me and seeing how those, um, come up in these different schools. So maybe USC differed from Carnegie Mellon in terms of student engagement or in terms of campus culture. Um, Mm -hmm. And kind of being able to talk about universities, not in terms of ranking, not in terms of would I be a public policy major here or a public policy major there, rather in terms of more detailed um, elements, I think probably it me to break it down a little bit. Got it. And
3: Did you revisit any of those schools or did you kind of just remember what you saw the first time you were on campus?
4: So, I actually only ended up visiting USC, and that was the one that I had actually never visited in the past. Mm, okay. Um Yeah, I had never visited in the past. I came for one of those admit weekends a lot of universities hold once acceptances are sent out, mm-hmm. and I really loved it. I did wrestle with the idea a lot after that, so, I don't know, I think it's interesting. Maybe it played a role, maybe it didn't play a role, but... I definitely saw something in this school that I hadn't seen at other schools. Got it. Right, so it's, it's, we can't say for sure, unless you had
3: visited both of your final choice schools, that that last visit at USC didn't maybe give USC the advantage. But to your point, <laughs> yeah. there was something there that really stood out to you. So it did exactly. come down for you to USC and Carnegie Mellon. And how difficult a
4: choice was that for you? That was a hard decision. Um, it was It was hard because I think my parents and my sister and a lot of people I asked to weigh in because I was really struggling with making the decision and it was coming down to May 1st, which I believe is the the day you have to submit your final decision for most universities. And I was really struggling to to figure it out because I knew there were a lot of advantages to both universities um, and a lot of disadvantages to both universities. And I think part of it was that my parents were really heavily leaning towards Carnegie Mellon. Um, which is what made it the hardest, was kind of dissenting their opinions and feeling comfortable enough to do so. And that's not to say that students shouldn't listen to their parents. I think a lot of the points they brought up were valid and were things that I hadn't considered in the past. I do ultimately think I made the right decision in terms of the university I attended, but sometimes you just need to follow your gut.
3: (laughs) Right, exactly. And it is a hard thing because a lot of people will have opinions sometimes because you ask them for their opinions which it sounds like in your case you were doing because you were wrestling with it and then a lot of times people will have opinions whether you ask them for it, the opinion or not <laughs> and sometimes exactly. you don't actually want it and they're going to weigh in um, and and I you know I don't want to you know spend too I I have a few more questions I want to ask you but I am curious at the end you you just you said you went with your gut did you was that enough for your parents or did you kind of have to lay out more reason than just, I don't know it feels right to me?
4: So, I don't know it feels right to me was the initial yeah. thought that caused yep. me to decide. Um, in terms of the rationale, there was no chance that was going to be enough to convince my parents, and that's not to say they wouldn't have barred me from attending USC, but I think I wanted them, as their daughter, I wanted them to feel comfortable with where I was going to, especially because they're making a financial decision yep. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think part of it was knowing that they would let me make the decision I wanted to make and they have that respect for me, but also having the respect for them that I need to, I need them to know that I'm making a decision that's informed, not just based off of, oh, like it just felt right.
3: Right. Exactly. Um, So what'd you use as uh, as your kind of ammunition for why it felt right for (laughs) you?
4: So I looked at the different programs that I was admitted to. Um, I was admitted into, Uh, International Relations Global Business at USC, which is a dual degree between the IR school and the business school. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually ended up transferring directly into the business school after my first year, but at the time I thought I was going to be pursuing something oriented in the international relations public policy sphere. At Carnegie Mellon, I had gotten to a similar program. I think it was public policy. And looking at the combination of business and international relations, this is a really strong program here at USC for that. And that was a major selling point. It has a lot of, um, I guess, I don't know, prominence um, in the industry and the, in the field of international relations. And so that was definitely a selling point for that. Beyond that, I think it was campus engagement and the campus culture. Um, my sister went to, Car- um, not to Carnegie Mellon, she Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those really rigorous schools. And a lot of people enjoy that. She loved it there. Um, I think Carnegie Mellon, it gives off a similar culture as U- mm-hmm. Chicago does, and I just remembered them telling me about a year or two before how it's important to go to a good school, but you want to make sure you're going somewhere where you can be happy on a day-to-day. You're not constantly being inundated with assignments and all this stress, um, and of course, there are stressful days here. There's a lot of assignments and work that I need to do, but it's just a different environment.
3: Yeah, I would say, I, I think the campus culture are very different, and that's not a knock against either campus culture. They're just different places, right? And one exactly. person will love one and not like another, and then vice versa. So, it
4: um, takes a different student,
3: exactly. Exactly. So uh, we've kind of already tipped our hand, but um, y- how happy are you there? Does it measure up to what you thought it was going to be? It's interesting that you changed your mind, because that happens very frequently, um, right. but you know, now that you're there, are you,
4: are you happy with the choice? I'm really happy with the choice. Um, I think there's this acclimation period that most college freshmen go through. Um, it seems to be the case across the board with all my friends who went to different universities, different locations throughout the country. So I don't think it's unique to USC or the West coast or Southern California, but I think being a freshman at college is hard. You're away from home for the first time. You're, kind of doing your own thing for the first time, and that it's it's just different. It's different than anything you've experienced before, and so I think after you get through this acclimation period, then you're able to understand that you're actually in a place that makes you happy. I think for me, the acclimation was first semester freshman year, where Mm -hmm. I was really unsure, and I was still kind of grappling with the whole idea of, did I make the right decision? Were my parents right? Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. I think once I decided I wanted to switch my major, switch into the business school, which is definitely more well-suited to my interests and skills. And once I came back from winter break realized that I had a, position, a leadership position in an organization already, had a friend group that I was excited to go back and see, going back was actually where the tipping point where I really decided I was really content with where I was. Got it.
3: And now you're a year, it's a year plus later, even after that. And obviously you're, you're even happier now than probably you were then.
4: Yeah.
5: <laughs>
4: so um, I think a big part of it is being involved on campus, which made the difference for me.
3: Right. And I do think that's great advice um, for anyone who's not realizing maybe she's giving you good advice, which is get involved when you get on campus, because otherwise there's a real tendency you could just sit in your dorm room. And text your friends from high school or your parents, and you're never going to be happy if that's the life that you structure for yourself uh, in a residential environment anyway. Um, We talked about applying to fewer schools. Uh, I'm curious if there's anything else you would do differently if you could do it all over again.
4: Yeah, um, I think applying to fewer schools and maybe taking more time to think about the actual layout of the programs, the general education requirements, what it means to actually be a student there, I think that's actually lost on a lot of students when they're applying. They think about college as just like an experience and not understanding that there are a bunch of different classes you have to take, there are different requirements, and are you going to be at, happy at a school that has 12 different school requirements for sciences, for example, if you're not a science-oriented person? Mm-hmm. Um, I think looking into the intricacies of what it means to actually be a student there, um, how the classes are structured, how the campus is structured, is this safe neighborhood, do you live on campus sophomore year? Um, I love the fact that sophomore year most students move off into apartments
5: in the Mm -hmm. area. I
4: think it gives you this great sense of independence, and I had no idea about that dynamic until I actually got in and was maybe a semester in and was kind of looking at where I was going to be living the following year.
3: Got it. Yeah. And so that ended up being a great thing for you, but someone else might've not liked that idea and not, you know, not realized it. And I think, I think that's great advice for every student out there is to dig a little deeper. I do think that a lot of students never get past the name or the reputation of a school. Um, they, they think they do, they try to, but they, they don't. And, and, you know, it's a tricky thing. Um, especially if you're not really sure what you yourself are looking for I think it sounds like you had the benefit of having a few areas of interest that you really thought were for you Um, not all students have that but that doesn't mean that students who don't have that can't dig a little bit more deeply Um, right Noah thank you so much for joining us today I really appreciate it I'm sure it's a glorious day in Southern California and (laughs) um, you probably have a class to get to so I do appreciate your time today
4: yeah, of course. It was great talking to you.
3: All right, great. Um, all right, we're going to be answering your college finance questions after the break, so don't go away.
5: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. So, make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count.
2: Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
5: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
3: Welcome back, everybody. Uh, you may be aware, but uh, or you may not, but every month we've been taking listener questions. Um, we do a segment where we answer listener questions on college admissions, and we also do a segment where we answer your questions on college finance. Uh, and if you're interested in, if you have a question, I guess more importantly, email it to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com is our email address, and so you can send all of your questions to that email address. Um, But today, I'm excited to welcome my colleague, Tara Tara Piantanita-Kelly, who is a former uh, financial aid officer at a number of places, including Menlo College and the Rochester Institute of Technology. Um, And she's going to answer those questions because, as I've said before, I know enough to be dangerous, but not at all enough to be helpful on the college finance side. So welcome, Tara.
0: Great. Thank you. Nice to be here.
3: Oh uh, Yeah, well, we're excited. Like I said, my listeners would much rather hear from uh, you than from me on these questions. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to jump right in here. Um, the first one is, uh, we recently submitted the FAFSA since most of our schools had a March 1 deadline.
0: Is there anything else for us to do? Well, there's always something for you to do at this time of year, I would say. Um, I, it's, it's not a bad idea to check to see if any of the schools that your student has applied to, if they require anything other than the FAFSA to apply for aid, Uh, if they, some will require, you know, maybe W-2 forms or an institutional financial aid application. So um, I would kind of recommend going to the financial aid section of all of the college's websites and then uh, look at the application instructions and, and just make sure you've done everything that Uh, you need to do in order for them to put a financial aid award together. And then another thing that you can be doing right now is to be getting prepared for when those award letters start coming in. So um, what you might want to do is set up a spreadsheet with all of the colleges that your student has received acceptances from and then list each school's direct costs, things like tuition fees and on-campus room and board. And then as the award letters start to come in, you can enter the, the free money amount, uh, the grants and scholarships from each school onto the spreadsheet. And then when you subtract the, the free money from the direct cost, you get what, you're, what we call the net price for each mm-hmm. school. So that will really give you a good way to really compare apples to apples of actual costs uh, for each school uh, by the time you need to make your decisions.
3: Got it. And actually, for anyone who's interested in hearing a little bit more about that, we actually just last week did a whole segment on comparing financial aid awards, so you might want to go to the archives uh, and take a listen to that. All right, next question. Uh, It's looking like we have a pretty substantial gap to cover for my daughter. What loans are available for college, and should I be applying for them now?
0: Oh, good question. Um, Gaps, unfortunately, are pretty common. And, but the good news is often they can be filled with loans or at least portions of them can be filled with loans if need be. So, uh, do you remember the old guaranteed student loan back, I don't know, 30 years ago? Well, it's, it's still around. It's changed a bit and it has a new name. It's now called the federal direct loan. But students can still borrow, uh, on it. They can borrow a certain amount each year. So in their own name with no credit requirements at all. So, freshman students can borrow $5,500, sophomore students can borrow $6,500, and juniors and seniors can borrow $7,500. But if there's still more of a gap that's left over, uh, students can either borrow private educational loans, but remember, they'll, they will need a creditworthy co that usually fall, falls on mom and dad,
4: uh, mm-hmm.
0: or parents can borrow on the Federal Plus loan program. So um, both the private loans and the federal plus loan have higher lending limits. So unlike the, the guaranteed student loan, the federal direct loan, um, they're not capped at 5500 or $6,500. Uh, they're capped essentially at the entire cost of the school for each year. So if you have a student that's going to a $60,000 a year school and you want to borrow $60,000 a year, and you can you can do that. <laughs> so not that Got we're it. recommending that, but just so you know that um, there are. I do want to mention that there's some credit components associated with both the private loans and the PLUS loan, the federal PLUS loan. So um, when it, if a parent wants a federal PLUS loan, uh, the parent's credit score uh, credit is pulled. And they look at things. They don't look at debt to income ratio or FICO scores, but they do look for something called adverse credit history, and that's uh, usually any 90 day late pays, bankruptcies, or foreclosures in the last five years. Um, but other than that, parents can borrow what they need. As to when to do it, uh, most financial aid awards are going to include uh, the federal direct loan and also the federal plus loan on them. So when the award comes in and you've determined which school your student is going to go to, you can uh, either accept the loans as they're stated on the award, or you can change them to a different amount, or you can decline them altogether. So if you accept them, then uh, the the school that your student is going to attend will walk you through the process of getting the loans at their school. So you don't need to go out and find these loans, uh, at least a federal loan. The schools will help you with them.
3: Got it. Okay. So, if you need to get a private loan, that you're going to do on your own, but you might want to wait until you find out what your packages are before you do that. Um, Yes, exactly. Okay. Got it. Um, All right. So, another question comes from a family who says, we received an award letter from a school, and it says to sign and return within two weeks. Do we risk the financial aid offered if we wait until May 1 to deposit and accept the offer?
0: Well, I can say I worked at a, a lot of financial aid offices, and in general, they, they put something on the award letter that says, you know, please return within two weeks. That's, that's very common. Um, however, uh, for incoming students, if you want to wait until that May 1st, um, you know, deposit date, if you mm-hmm. call, call the school and ask them, they specifically, you know, I, it says turn it in within two weeks, but we'd like to wait until May 1st. Um, you know, is that a problem? Usually schools will hold your award and wait for your decision if you ask them to.
3: Right, I mean, because in general, on the admission side, we have a common reply date of May 1st. Um, Some colleges have already notified students of their decisions. And we definitely see this on the admission side where there is a, you know, maybe a push from the school. Oh, you have to deposit and sign up or you might not get housing or um, something like that. It's not ideal, uh, and I think your advice is really great, and I would extend it to just about anything related to this. Which is, when in doubt, call the school. Don't panic <laughs> yes. and send it in, and you know maybe even pay for a, a non-refundable deposit. And you, you're not sure your child's going to go there. You 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 do you are supposed to get until May one. So at least make the call. I suppose it's possible a school might tell you really sorry, but if in order to guarantee this, we need. Something from you indicating that you're attending, but I would say more often than not they're going to give you that time. Um, Absolutely, that
0: can- I, I can tell you that uh, of, of the schools that I've worked at, we we never pulled back an offer if it didn't come in within that two weeks. So right. even if so, they didn't reach out to us. So yes, I, I would I would say if it would, like you said, when in doubt, ask the school.
3: Right, I and and I say this every time, and people are probably sick of me saying it, but. They're not rescinding offers because you're asking questions. Um, you would never <laughs> spend this much money and not ask questions. And I don't know why on the college side, sometimes families do. They're afraid to a- even just ask something. You know, no one ever got an offer rescinded because a, fa- a parent called up and said, gee, we have a question about this or is there maybe more money that we could get? They don't say, oh, I can't even believe you're asking. That's so rude. Now we're just taking away your offer. It will never happen right. that way,
0: ever. Right. It's, it's like the, the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. The financial aid offices are not like that. No the financial they, aid for you. They, they Exactly,
3: do <laughs> exactly. Parents will get our reference students. Well, they may too because the Seinfeld is on all the time. But you're right. And there aren't many places in the world where they, you know, kick you out for asking a question, soup Nazi aside. right. All right, (laughs) so our next question is this. Um, Federal work study is awarded on several of the award letters that we've received. What is it, and how does it work? Uh, And then probably, I guess this is maybe a larger question, which is
0: should students work while they're in college? Okay, yes, a multi-part question here. Let's talk about work study. So first of all, I'll tell you that it is a need-based job program for college students. So when I say need-based, that means a student has to show that they have demonstrated financial need at that particular school in order to work on the federal work-study program. So if they show need uh, on your financial aid award, it might show, oh, let's say you were awarded a $1,000 federal work-study award. And that's great. It doesn't mean they're going to give you $1,000. It means you can work on campus. Uh, in the federal work study job, and earn up to a thousand dollars in that job during that school year. That's what it means. Uh, students have to apply for these jobs and then receive them and actually work them in no. order to receive this this money. They earn paychecks. It's just like a regular job. They get you know taxes taken out. It's it's a regular job. Right. Um, so uh, it, they can they can work. Sometimes it's oftentimes these. Positions are on campus. Uh, Sometimes they're even off campus, but they're still federal work-study jobs. So um, if uh, they don't apply for a job or if they don't receive a job, then they don't earn the money. It just goes away. So the question is, should they work while in school? And, And that is... That is Uh, a really good question. I I can say I worked through school. I have a daughter who is a senior in college, and she has worked through school, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right decision for everyone. Um, I've had lots of families say, you are sitting across the desk from me in the financial aid office, and they say, you know, thank you for the financial aid. Uh, Thank you for the Federal Work Study Award, however... For his freshman year, we really want him to concentrate on his studies and just get acclimated to college. So we're not going to have him work his freshman year, but we would like for him perhaps to work starting in his sophomore year. Completely reasonable and a completely you know good conversation to have uh, with with the family.
3: Yes, and I mean I'm I'm with you. I worked when I was in college. My husband worked when he was in college. Uh, my stepson, who is currently enrolled in college, is working. Uh, I do think it's probably important to point out that work-study jobs are typically not, you know, it's, I mean, my, I had a work-study position and I think I worked 10 hours a week. It certainly wasn't right, right. anything, you know, overwhelming. Um, and then I guess my other thing is just because you get feder- a federal work-study position does not mean that you must take a federal work-study job, right? You could do something else if you wanted to,
0: to earn oh, money. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. yes my 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 daughter is is working but she's not in a federal work study position she's in just a regular job position so yes right. absolutely um and then another thing to keep in mind is if you decide not to uh take the work study uh, offer you can decline it um but they're probably not going to fill that $1000 or whatever whatever the original award is they're probably not going to fill it in with free money just so you know um did they you might, uh, Yep sorry no, I was going to say, I, I
3: was, I was going to interrupt you. So you say what you're going to say, and then I'll ask my question. You may be answering oh, it
0: here. Oh, okay. Uh, in some cases, actually, a family I talked to earlier today uh, their loan money had been decreased because their work study award was so high that the student had not been able to find a job that she liked on campus. So she said, can we decline? It was a $4,000 work study. Can we decline Ooh. our $4,000 work study and increase our subsidized loan? And they hadn't maxed out their subsidized loan. So I said, yes, absolutely, you can do that.
3: Got it. And, well, what I was going to say or ask was, and now I might forget what I was going to ask you. Ooh. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter. I think um, I think we've kind of covered the whole work study thing. And um, I guess what I was going to say is that um, the really the the idea of the work study jobs is that I know what it was. If you decline the the work study in one year, will they not offer it to you in subsequent years? Will it go away that
0: option? No, it will not. And uh, even if, let's say, they don't offer to you your sophomore year for some reason, you can always go into the financial aid office and say, hey, am I eligible for federal work study? And if so, can I have it? And if they have uh, funds remaining, then yes. And you're eligible, then yes, they can give it to you.
3: Got it. Okay. All right, we have time for one more question. Uh, And this one is, can we expect the financial aid offers from schools to be similar? What should we be looking for on each award? Uh, And you kind of mentioned this uh, in, I think, the first question, and we just did a whole show on this last week, but I think there's probably some stuff you could share now. um, Okay, sure.
0: So can we expect financial aid offers from schools to be similar? (laughs) No. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's very rare that I I don't say it depends, but in this case, I will say no. Uh, It's actually fairly uncommon because colleges, they have different costs, they have different resources, and they have different packaging policies. So think of it this way. Um, Would Stanford University give you the same financial aid award as your local, you know, in-state public college? No, because Stanford costs a lot more. They have a ton of their own money to give, and they meet full demonstrated financial need, whereas on the other hand, your local and state public school costs a lot less. They have usually, they have a lot less of their own money to give their students, not always, but usually. And then I don't know of any state universities that meet demonstrated financial need for all of their students. So um, you can expect a wide range of uh, financial aid offers, depending on the types of schools that you've applied to. Got it.
3: And those offers are also going to look pretty, pretty different often, right? Like physically look different in the way that they're laid out and presented.
0: Yes, there's um, a push that's been going on in the financial aid, actually uh, from the the president on down to um, standardize award letters so that you can really compare apples to apples. But uh, what I really would like for you to do is uh, look at the free money uh, because you Based on your year in school, the student is going to be able to borrow 5500 whether they go to a community college or to Stanford. So look at the free money. Look at the cost of the school and look at the free money that they're offering you so that you can really compare apples to apples.
3: Got it. Okay. So um, we did get a few questions that um, I think will take too long to answer, but really related to... Um, can you ask for more money if we get more money from one school than another? And, um, that, uh, another from someone who's, uh, the, the husband just found out that he might lose his job this summer and, you know, kind of what the, whether or not that can be taken into consideration. And so next week we're going to be doing the first in a two-part series on asking for more money. Uh, we're going to do financial. (laughs) Yeah, it should be really good. Um, so next week, we're going to do financial aid appeals. And the week after that, we're going to do scholarship negotiations. So um, Tara is going to get out of having to try and answer these in the one 30 <laughs> seconds we have left. Uh, and I would just encourage our listeners to go um, to our archive for the show from last week and to tune in in the next two weeks. And then also, um, Alex Bickford, who is a colleague of both Tara and mine, uh, just wrote a really great ba- blog about, and I have the title here, Five Tips for Increasing Your Financial Aid Offer. Um, so if you're interested in taking a look at that blog, you can either just Google Five Tips for Increasing Your Financial Aid Offer or you can go to our blog, which is at getintocollege.com forward slash blog, and you'll see it there. It's the very first one. Tara, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure. Anytime great uh and all right to our listeners don't go away uh next segment we're going to be talking about encouraging creativity in your child um so stick around
5: Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in.
4: Have you found the beauty inside of you?
0: Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
5: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
3: Hi, everybody, and welcome back. Um, Excited to welcome my colleague, Cara Courtois, who's been on the show a number of times before. And she's a former teacher and also a former Barnard admissions officer. um, And she's here to talk through a New York Times article that appeared back in January. And thanks for joining me today, Cara. Oh, thanks for having me, Beth. Absolutely. So, way back at the very end of January, there was an article published uh, in the New York Times Sunday Review. It was actually an op-ed by Adam Grant, and it was uh, all about how to raise a creative child. And it certainly went around the kind of admissions world. Some counselors shared it on uh, the Facebook counseling page, and we were talking about it internally, and um, kind of were thinking that it might be interesting to talk about it on air for our listeners. So, Um, thanks for joining and and, um, offering, I think you have a really amazing perspective because A, you have three young children um, and B, in addition to working with students uh, going through the college admissions process, you also used to teach them and uh, Mm -hmm. in the classroom. So I guess um, maybe tell us a little bit more about what the article was kind of all about just in general for anyone who didn't get a
1: chance to read it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bunch of takeaways and it's, it's a very quick read, you know, for anybody who wants to potentially um, look it up. You can just look at how to raise a creative child. But um, I think one of the major takeaways that I saw from it was really about how encouraging we, or parents in general, um, for us to kind of step back and, you know, reminder yet again, I think sometimes at all ages, that it's okay for our kids to fail or it's okay for our kids to figure things out on their own and really trying to foster that. And even citing some research um, about, you know, families where maybe a little less structure might go a long way with regard to creativity that you can't really... I always say that you you can't, like, if someone compliments my daughter for being creative or artistic, because she is quite often... I would say, well, I had nothing to do with that, and that's 100% true, other than I would say, you know, just providing some free play and time. So that, I think that's one of the biggest takeaways um, from the article that you can't micromanage creativity, and you can't really buy it. <laughs> you know, you can't yep. always um, sign them up for every single class, and that's going to make a creative soul.
3: Exactly. And I do think that some people come by creativity fairly naturally, and then yes. some people. You know are not particularly creative, and you can give them all the free time in the world. they may develop a little bit more, but they may never be creative people generally but um, uh-huh. what was interesting to me about the article was that the first half of the article sort of really delved into um, people, students, children who are kind of prodigies who do extraordinary things at a young age. But how frequently that does not necessarily lead to extraordinary things in adulthood. Um, right. I, you know, I do think it's sort of debatable that that's a requirement, um, that you do something extraordinary at one point in your life, that that should lead to more extraordinary later on, because maybe
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know, just a normal life is fine, where you're successful and self-sufficient and all of that is fine. But if you show such incredible promise, it does seem to follow that that promise would be realized um, later on. And so then the article kind of transitions into more of a looking more deeply at what kinds of actions encourage that creativity that might lead to great things later on. Um, so what are, uh, you know, I, I know that you and I were talking and one of the things you mentioned was... Um, about, um, the highly structured home. And, and we were kind of just talking about that and, um, you know, some things from the article that made you think that less structure would be, would be better than more
1: structure. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the major points they made in there was about the research showing that a a house that has, I think, an average of six rules for the kids to follow, um, lends itself to maybe less creative kids than maybe a home that has one, you know, according Mm -hmm. to the research. And I think if you lived and died by what this article said, then you might, you know, a lot of families might just throw it out immediately, you know, if they are in a more structured home. But I always say, I, I, for everything I read in life, it's always, you know, take what you like, you know, and leave the rest. Mm -hmm. And I like a moderation of that. But I think figuring out what works for you and keeping in mind that sometimes, um, I don't think it's about bedtime. Like, for me, I, I love the structure of bedtime mm-hmm. that allows me to be creative. <laughs> you know? Yes, and exactly, and it functional. Fosters creativity. Totally, and then it fosters creativity in my kids because I can come up with more ideas, and they can come up with more ideas because they're rested. You know? So yep. I don't think it's really about um, leaving that behind so much, but maybe more about, you know, instead of saying, okay, so this is the way you make your bed, or this is the way, you know, we do our chores in this house and it happens at this time, you know, that it is more about what do you think is going to work with that child? Because as so often when we're talking with parents and in my own life, it's what formula works for one, oftentimes like what I might like. It's not going to work for this insanely creative child that I have or this other child who likes everything in its place. So it's finding that, you know, kind of moderation and what works for your family. But I think the reminder, I guess, I got from this article was, um, you know, to allow time for, you know, that creativity to grow. And sometimes that means things will get out of line a little bit. And that's, that's great. Or looking right. for creativity, in places that might be unexpected, meaning it's not just the arts, you know, specifically, that it might be in science, you know, or it might be in, you know, um, in sports, you know, I love, I have to give an example. My son is learning to play lacrosse right now because we're in New York and you have to, (laughs) you know, (laughs) at some level. And uh, it's a a great sport for his personality because he's always moving but he's been, I, he of his own volition, I have no idea, you know, discovered that on YouTube, you can learn different skills, you know, and tons of kids know this, of course. But he's taken it upon himself to try and get better at certain things, um, plays, et cetera. And, you know, I, <laughs> since my husband, I'm like, man, we could not ask him to do that, you know, of course not. but I, You know, I think um, just allowing him to figure out which sport, you know, allows him to be creative, he's making up his own plays, you know, and he's, um, when I played with him the other day, he was showing me, like, how he modified something the coach did, and that's kind of what I, you know, look to as far as, yeah, he's really working his brain, you know, amid something where you don't necessarily think lacrosse would be that creative, but, Mm -hmm. um you know he's looking to make it his own, his own. And I think that, you know, whether he plays lacrosse for the rest of his life or not, I have no idea, but I think that is an exciting skill to watch.
3: Well, I think that, you know, when you think about what does creativity get you in any setting, because you're right, it isn't just the arts. It's not just, oh, I'm a great, um, I, I'm really great at painting or I'm a, a wonderful mm-hmm. sculptor. It is being creative about how you approach your work and You know, who are the people who make big changes? They're the ones who come in, figure out, you know, I know they've always done it this way, Yeah. but why don't we try doing it this way? And sometimes Mm -hmm. that succeeds and sometimes it fails, but usually it leads to something that no one's ever thought of before and that's how you get better, right? Because you do something that no one else has thought of, so yeah. yeah, I mean... Yeah, I always I, talk with
1: seniors about that.
0: Sorry.
3: No, no, it, but it's right. Um, and and I think that that's, that is the importance. I have a super unbelievably, like, ultra-creative child, and I would not describe myself that way. And I find it really challenging because mm-hmm. he always wants to do something. Ad- he never does something the same way twice, and that's why mm-hmm. organized sports have proved to be not great for him. But he mm-hmm. loves skiing. Right. Because he can go down the mountain whatever way he wants, so long yes, as he's awesome. upright and not hurting people, right?
1: Yep, yep. Yep. So. so that's the key, you know, and so often, you know, I find that we're talking about parenting. I don't, you know, it's with parents and people like ourselves, and but tying in the education piece to it is, mm-hmm. you know, it's partly about meet our kids where they are. And then when it comes to, you know, sort of our world and admissions and all of that stuff, You know, I regularly see the tie when parents say, you know, how does my child get admitted to the most selective school? You Mm -hmm. know, and I say, well, there isn't a formula. You know, we always talk about that on our team. But it's really figuring out where's your child's joy, where's their happiness, and how do they get down the mountain in their own way? You -hmm. know, as opposed to always, you know, maybe not following the, the flags on the slalom course or whatever, you know, but... Um, yeah, in whatever way, it's just looking for what's the path that they, they can figure out and, and doing a little bit more of letting them figure it out. That's that's the exciting part, I think. I,
3: I agree. I mean, the kid who chooses his or her own path and really is encouraged to do that and get involved yeah. in that in a in an intensive way is ultimately the kid that tends to fare best in this process because there's something authentic about them and and they also have something really interesting that they can talk to people about. Um, yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah.
3: So we only have yep. about a very like less than a minute. But is there anything specific that you would offer to our listeners if they are looking to foster creativity in their own children that we haven't talked about already?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I well, there. Are, I would say one of the simplest things, and this is not a commercial for it, but Pinterest. Um, <laughs> which is a website that completely overwhelms me because it's a rabbit trail. You know, you just, oh, yeah. hole, you know, yep. but a good example that um, my eight-year-old son is obsessed with Legos, has been for at least four years and has now now in the 8 910 year 10-year-old range, you know, they really sell those packaged um, Star Wars and mm-hmm. whatever, where you can only make the set you know, basically once, you know, and then yep. it's built and then what do you do? Just stare at it? Mm-hmm. And I always, you know, I'm fighting against that of, okay, yes, we could do that every, you know, once in a while for a special occasion if that's, you know, ultimately what you want. But I went to Pinterest one day with him and said, let's look for some ideas for the 10,000 Legos that are strewn, you know, in these boxes in our house that you could do to get creative with. And, and, just got some conjured up some ideas so that then he could fly on his own. You know, so yep. that sometimes you don't have to come up with it, you know, as the parent. I didn't even have Legos growing up so you know, it wasn't like, Oh yeah, let's recreate, you know, some things that I had remembered. It was more like, all right, let's get some ideas and just and and there's, you know, where the internet is your friend and something like Pinterest. Um right. the Maker, The Maker program is also such an awesome website um, where it gives little projects and ideas if you have a little budding scientist or budding engineer or you know kid who likes to create and you know being, and I, the deal I 'm making with my 10 year old who is that kid is that's fantastic, but I also want you to learn the skill of cleanup <laughs> because right. that's where I hesitate. Sometimes where I'm like, ah, I don't really want you to be creative now. <laughs> right, because that's important is, too. Hey, I, I think we status. need to we need to
3: do a blog on this for our readers. So we'll, we'll work on a blog for this. But really quickly okay. um, before we run out of our time, thank you, Kara. Thanks to all my guests today. Um, we next week we're going to be talking about how to appeal a financial aid award to get more money. We're also going to be talking about this new Turning the Tide report that came out from Harvard and what that means for students. Um, We're going to hear from another student, one who's currently at Brown, about um, his or her college selection story. I don't know if it's a boy or a girl, so we'll find out. Um, And we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific.